Luke chapter two. You guys are awesome. You brave the cold weather. Maybe it's gonna ice, who knows? I realize, man, the cold for us Texas boys just gets, mm, it is hard, hard to handle, especially when it gets wet and cold. But I appreciate you guys coming this morning, excited to dive into Luke again with you. We're gonna be in Luke chapter two, starting in verse one. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. And while you're turning there, Really exciting, uh, get to share with you another update uh, that, that I think is really significant for us as a community. When we were moving into this facility, part of our vision was that this would allow us to grow as a uh, house of prayer, that Jesus said that his church was called to be a house of prayer for all nations. And I love that imagery. It's one of the callings of God on the church at large. It's one of the ways that we've been called by Jesus to live out what it means to be the church together. So we don't just wanna be a people who pray, right? We wanna be a praying people. We don't just wanna be a people who prayer is kind of the spare tire in the car that you pull out when you really need it, but we wanna be a people where prayer is the steering wheel, where it's central to our lives. I love the promise of Jesus in John 15, where he says, "If, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's hard to imagine kind of an activity uh, besides prayer that would help us abide in Jesus in a greater way. And so over the last semester or so, as we've been talking about this, there've been a number of people that have been uh, either emails or texts or talking to our staff in various formats saying, hey, God's stirring something in me in the area of prayer. God's growing me. He's doing something. He's stirring things up. I'm wanting to pray more. I'm wanting to grow in this. And so we as a leadership team just kind of watch what the Spirit seems to be doing in our church. And it's just really exciting to see this fresh hunger for prayer. And so we've been working over the last semester with these different individuals who are saying we want to grow in prayer. And so I'm really excited that today we're going to get to take a step forward. And I don't want to oversell it, but I do want to communicate this is really meaningful for us in kind of launching a house of prayer. After this service, you can go through the lobby and there's a dedicated prayer room that a number of people have worked to really make a great space to have dedicated to pray both as an individual, as a group, as maybe your life group or a ministry team. Really excited to launch that. And you're going to get a card when you walked out, when you walk out of a number of prayer opportunities that are going to be going on uh, this semester. Not just one here or there, but actually, apart from a couple open sessions, which you could sign up for today, we're going to have prayer opportunities morning, midday, and evening, almost seven days uh, a week. That's really cool to be a people sowing in, in prayer. That's exciting. And if you're hungry to grow in prayer, if you're like, man, I think this is something that God's calling me into, I want to invite you into this. This is not an initiative that we're doing to kind of rally everybody to pray, those are good. But this is a step forward in being a culture that values prayer, of people that value prayer, of living out what it means to be a praying church. So that's really exciting. You'll be hearing more about that, but you're gonna get one of these cards as you leave uh, with just a number of prayer opportunities. I'm really excited for us to sow in prayer together. Okay, Luke chapter two. We're in our first things first series, and we're going to read a classic scripture today, a famous story today. I imagine 
Almost everyone here probably has either heard or read bits and pieces of what we're going to read today. So Luke 2, verse 1, as we journey through the gospel of Luke together. Luke 2, verse 1, uh, Luke records, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So, right, we've heard the story, and angels visited John and his wife, or uh, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. They're going to have a baby named John, who's going to be a prophet used mightily of the Lord. Another angel visited uh, Mary and told her that she was going to conceive a child, and that his name was going to be Jesus, and that he was going to be the Savior of the world. These are huge, and now we're actually reading kind of the time period, the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. So there's a census, they're going back to be registered, and Joseph went up from Galilee, we're in verse four, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So according to this census, Joseph is going back to his hometown, he's taking Mary with him, she's pregnant, they're going to be registered in verse six. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So we read right there what probably in your Bible, the headline is the birth of Jesus. The story is moving forward. Luke is recording not events leading up to Jesus's earthly ministry, but now he's recording the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. I remember as a kid uh, at Christmas time when my extended family would get together, we would divvy out roles and kind of act out this story from homemade props and whatnot. As kids, as our family, it was kind of a part of, of what made Christmas Christmas. You might have had something like that in your family, or you might have heard this story or been familiar with this story. But if we look at it with fresh eyes, it should make us pause for a moment. Like the, the, the headline in my Bible is the birth of Jesus. That's confusing, right? If, if you're here and you're, uh, you're a Christian, you're like, wait, wait, hold on. I, I thought we believed that Jesus was God. How, what are we saying here? Jesus is, is born. How can God be born? That would seem very confusing. Like wouldn't God ceased to be God if there was a time when God was not God? And if you're not a Christian, you're like, whoa, you, you guys are really confusing now because I thought Christians believed that Jesus was God. I thought that was kind of the, the big deal, Jesus is Lord, and now you're saying that he was born, right? If you look at it with fresh eyes, that's a little bit uh, of a pause. Like, what are we talking about here? If you are from a Muslim background, we have a number of people in our church that are from that background, or you have ever tried to share your faith with a Muslim, with a coworker or a friend, you realize this is one of the big sticking points. It's like, what do you mean here? Like, of course, God is not born, nor does God give birth. And even maybe even more offensively, how can you Christians believe that a God who is so holy would come and have sexual relations with a girl? That's blasphemous. This is ludicrous. Like, this is just foolish. How can you believe that? If you're 
uh, from a Mormon background, or you've ever tried to share your faith with a Mormon, they, they read this, and they're like, well, of course. Jesus uh, was born a man. He, he, he was just a man, and he lived a, a great life. He lived an exemplary life. He lived a, a virtuous life. And by the goodness of his life, he kind of elevated from manhood to godhood. Like he, 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 he got a promotion, so to speak. And that's an example for all of us, that if we'll live a good and virtuous life in the way of Jesus, that we too, like Jesus, will become gods. That's how a Mormon would read that. And if you ever shared your faith with a Mormon, they've ever come knocking on your door, right? That's the angle that they're coming from. Jehovah's Witness, again, in a similar vein, it's like, well, of course Jesus is born. He is just a man. He's just an example, right? He's just a good man, a religious teacher for all of us. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that before his birth, uh, this is the, the angel Michael, right? And that he came and that somehow he was, he was Jesus for a while and then he died and then he went back to being an angel and Jesus is just an example for us all to follow. If you're kind of a, a secular person, right? It's common in our culture. Say Jesus is a good teacher, a, a wise person, good example, good teachings for us to follow, but he's nothing more than that. So of course he was born. If you're from a oneness Pentecostal background, right, your understanding of how this works is, well, there's God the Father in the Old Testament, and then kind of like transformers, he like transforms into Jesus here in the New Testament, and then when Jesus uh, goes to heaven and transforms again into the Holy Spirit, so we're talking about Jesus being born, we're talking about that transformation process, that's what we're meaning, Right? A lot of differing points of view around what, what is Luke trying to tell us here? What are the authors of Scripture? What is Jesus even saying about himself that he could be born, right? And I, and I realize, like, you're probably like, oh, Zach, I came to church. It's cold outside. It's supposed to sleep. Sunday's my day off. I want to hear an encouraging message. I don't want to work too hard in my brain. If you could just do that kind of God is love message, maybe have the worship team come back up and sing that reckless love song. Just leave me feeling inspired. I'm not trying to work, you know, very hard uh, on this thing. This is, just seems like it's gonna make my brain hurt. If you're familiar with a little bit of church history, you know that the first several hundred years of the church, one of the main debates was over clarifying what do scriptures like this mean? And it was so heated, in fact, that St. Nicholas, who we get Santa Claus from, uh, it, legend has it that he got so into this debate with a gentleman named Arius that he slapped him in the face because they disagreed. And you might be like, Zach, our world is so divided right now. I mean, if even Santa Claus punched a guy in the face over this issue, like maybe we should just leave this somewhere else. Aren't there more important things for us to talk about? Wouldn't it be better just to kind of stick with what's positive, rah-rah, encouraging, or, or you know what? There's a lot of needs around. There's a lot of, uh, you know, orphans, and there's a lot of uh, orphans that need care or homeless people that need food. Like, why don't we just focus on doing good and just leave this kind of headachey stuff of trying to understand all those different points of view and then talking about which one's really real? Let's just, let's just leave that aside and just focus on, on doing good. Wouldn't that be a better use of our time and our resources? Now, those are some great questions, some great kind of concerns. Uh, what I hope to do today is to answer those and to show you 
why this really matters. To do that, you're gonna have to bear with me for just a moment as we clarify what the Bible teaches about Jesus. So we're gonna take a look at what the scripture teaches about Jesus so that all of us can understand when Christians are talking about who Jesus is, this is what they're talking about. And then once we understand what they're saying, right, then I wanna share with you several reasons why it's so important that we understand this as well. Okay, so what are Christians saying when we talk about Jesus and who he is? What does it mean that Jesus was born and yet at the same time, Christians are saying Jesus is God? Well, like I said, there's a number of scriptures in the Bible that talk about this issue, a number of places where Jesus himself talks about this. And the church, uh, when I say church, not meaning our local church, but the worldwide church has spent much time discussing this and studying this. And probably the most famous place that you might have heard of where this was a central issue of clarification was at the Council of Nicaea. Now, the the time period is around 300 AD. The, The church is growing and it's spreading. And one of the challenges that it was facing was different Uh, descriptions and points of view over who Jesus is and what the scriptures taught about him. And so there was a council called of all the church leaders. They were called together 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, and they put together kind of a summary or an essentials guide, or, you know, you can read the Bible and you can read one scripture and you can go this way and you can read another scripture and you can go this way over here, right? They put together a guide a, a, a series of statements that would help all of us understand what the scripture clearly teaches about Jesus. So none of us would, well, I just read one verse and I kind of got off over here, or I just read another verse and I got off over here, but an essential guide, a rule of faith, so to speak, that summarized the Bible's teaching, that summarized what Dr. Luke and the other writers of the scripture, that summarized what Jesus said about himself. And I want to walk you through that today because that gives the clearest, most accurate, most historical statement that that I think would be helpful for us in this conversation. So this is called the Nicene Creed. We've recited it together before. I want to read it through with you and then make a couple observations so that we can all, again, understand what Christians mean when we're talking about Jesus and Jesus being born, but Jesus being God. So here's the Nicene Creed. Here's how it starts out. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. So the church fathers summarized the, the, the Bible's teaching, right? That there's one God, and he's a father overall. He's not an abstract deity, he's not a disengaged God, but he is a father. There's a father at the heart of the universe, that he's the maker of heaven and earth, that he created all things, not just the invisible world, not just kind of the afterlife, not just kind of, you know, when I pray and that sort of thing, but he created everything, visible and invisible. That's God the Father. Then they go on to say, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, important for us today, this phrase, Lord, describing Jesus Uh, Lord was the term that the Jews used for God in the Hebrew scriptures instead of using his proper name, Yahweh. They said, he's so holy, we don't wanna use, uh, we don't wanna say Yahweh, we're gonna say Lord. That's what we're gonna use to describe him as a way of showing adoration 
reverence, and honor. This is the phrase that the New Testament then ascribes to Jesus some 200 times. And essentially what it's saying is, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, when you see Jesus, you see him. When you see the God of the Old Testament and you see Jesus, same thing, right? So we believe in God, Father Almighty. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. He's the only son of God. Now they're gonna start to get into a bit more about who Jesus is. When they're saying he's the only son of God, the distinction they're trying to make is that Jesus is unique, that there's no one like him. That when the Bible speaks of people kind of being the children of God or us being adopted into the family of God, that is true, but it doesn't mean that we become like Jesus. Like we don't become Jesus. We don't become God's. Jesus is the only son of God, right? Begotten from the Father before all ages. So this is the second thing that you want to see. He's unique and he's eternal. When we use the word begetting, we're talking about childbirth. My, my second child, Eli, had his birthday this week. He turned eight, right? And I remember the day that he was born, I was thinking about that. He's my begotten child. He's of the same substance as I am. And yet he had a birthday, right? There was a time when he was not, and then he became. But what they're saying about Jesus is Jesus is not like that. That's not the way that we should think about him. He was begotten of the Father, meaning the same substance as God the Father, but it was begotten before all time, meaning Jesus is eternal. So he's the Lord. He's unique. He is eternal. And now your mind starts to melt as you start to think back to like eternity past and eternity future, right? And they're saying Jesus was there the whole time. There was never a time where God was not a father. And there was never a time where there was not God the son, but they have existed as God the Father and God the Son from eternity past to eternity future. It's exciting. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. You can see they're pounding because there's all these heresies saying, well, Jesus was made. He's just a created being. He's an angel or he's a glorified person. They're saying, no, 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 you've missed it. Jesus is God. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And if you're familiar with your Bibles, you realize they're just pulling passages of scripture together and they're using this imagery to help us all learn and grow. He was begotten, not made, and he's of the same essence as the father. He's not like a watered down version of God. He's not like a junior version of God. He is God. There's God the father and there's God the son. Now, they, they, next stanza, they move from speaking about his divinity to speaking about his humanity. This is important. You want to pay attention here. Through him, all things were made, right? So we saw that God the Father was the creator of all. And Jesus, God the Son, was a co-agent in creation. They were partnering together in creation. Now read this, for us and for our salvation, he being Jesus came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. So now what are they saying? That when we speak of Jesus, there's a divine nature of Jesus. 
that's eternal. Eternity past, eternity future. And yet, at a specific point in time, which we just read about in Luke 2, at a specific point in time, a specific place in time, to specific people, God the Son took on flesh. It's what theologians call the incarnation. He he took on a human nature. He was made like us. For what purpose? For us and for our salvation. And we're gonna learn more about that. Uh, I wanna read to you uh, several uh, years later, these church fathers then kind of clarify a little bit or add some articulation to help us understand. I'm just gonna read you a brief statement. If we can leave that portion of the Nicene Creed up on the slide, that would be great. They said that we then, the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach people to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same, catch this, perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of the same essence as the Father according to the Godhead and the same essence as mankind according to manhood. He was made like us in all things, yet without sin. He was begotten before all the ages. There he is eternal, according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, he was born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. Right, so you see these two natures of Jesus, and they're saying he's 100% God, and he's 100% man. And you're like, Zach, I took math. That doesn't work. Right, you don't have like 100% 100% together. You need to go back to math class, right? What they're saying is, no, no, no. This isn't like a combination. It's not like Jesus has like one side that's the God side and one side that's the man side and whichever face you're facing, that's what you get. They're saying in, in words too large for our comprehension, the human language melts in trying to describe that Jesus himself is fully man and fully God at the same time. And think about this. You're like, Zach, that's hard to understand. Yes. If you could understand and describe and break God down into kind of a little formula that you could articulate in a simple little mathematical equation, I would wonder if you're really talking about God or if you're talking about something that you just created of your own. Like my brain, I have a big head. Like I can't wear hats. Like my head is so big, right? And you, you know, you can see it. But here's the deal no matter how big my head is, trying to understand God should blow my mind and should blow your mind. He's so much bigger than all of us, right? So theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, it's important to realize when we're talking about the creed, when we're talking about who Jesus is, we're not trying to use these words to break Jesus down into a simple formula that fits on a napkin that we can put in a category and just fits. No, These words are meant to preserve a mystery that makes us stop, put our phone down, stop our scroll, look up. Fully God, fully man. And it's connected to for us, for our salvation. And it's meant to make you wonder. It's meant to make you stop. It's meant to make you look in and be like, what does this mean? And Luke is going to go on in the next couple chapters to begin to unpack for us what this salvation is for. So let's go back to the creed, because they don't stop there. Uh, They go on 
and they described Jesus' ascension. It said, Jesus ascended to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. So we're reading here about the first coming of Jesus, but they're saying there's a day when he's coming back. And they said, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. So now we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit. Notice he's called Lord as well. This is the Godhead, right? Three and one, one and three. And you see about the Holy Spirit that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. They're in relationship with one another. He's meant to be worshiped and glorified. So you've ever wondered, should I worship the Holy Spirit? Should I pray to the Holy Spirit? How's all that work? He's to be worshiped and glorified. That's God the Spirit. Okay, so you get the basic idea of what Christians believe, what the Bible teaches, what we as a local church affirm. But back to the incarnation, back to Jesus' birth, right? I said, stop, it makes you think. C.S. Lewis put it this way, that there was once in our world a stable that had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. I love that quote. Okay, so that's the basic idea. We get that we're supposed to stop, but Zach, why does this matter? It makes my head hurt, and it just seems like it's gonna lead to arguments. Can't they just believe what they believe? I believe what I believe. We're cool. It's actually a little bit more complex than that. So I've shared this a number of times with you, but I wanna share it again. What you believe about God, whether you believe in Jesus, you believe in Buddha, you believe you're Hindu, you're Muslim, you're secular, whatever you believe about God, shapes the narrative of your life, shapes your life story, okay? Whatever you believe, you can say, well, I'm not religious. You have something inside of you that's like, this is the purpose and the meaning of life. This is what's valuable. This is what I'm about. Whatever that thing is, right, shapes your life. It shapes your understanding of who God is. It shapes your understanding of your own self-identity. It shapes the relationships that you have, the way you go about relationships, how you treat people. It shapes the way you think about your work and what you spend your time on earth doing. It shapes the way you see life and use your resources. It shapes you. Uh, this, this, yeah, it just it shapes you. I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. So <clears throat> that being said, if Jesus is just a man, if that's all that he is, if he's a good man, a wise man, a great teacher who, who lived a great life and left us an example, and if we follow his example and follow his teachings that we'll get a good life and we'll get blessed by God and we'll get honored, and we'll, that, that's kind of the track that we're, that we're on. If that's what you think Jesus is, right, then the operating system that you see of his kingdom is that of karma, you get what you deserve, right? We're familiar with the term karma. You cut somebody off, right? Oh, you're gonna get cut off. Karma, right? You, you cheat on your taxes and then someone steals some money from you and it's like karma, you got what you deserve. You work hard, you get promoted, you got what you deserve, right? That, that kind of operating system, that's the way that we think about life. If you see Jesus as just a man, because life operates, if I follow his example, I'm gonna get blessed, I'm gonna get honored, and I'm gonna get rewarded, and that's the way life is gonna go. Whatever I sow, I'm gonna reap. That's your operating system. Now, 
If that's your operating system, your relationship with God is going to be defined by transactions. I'm coming to God with a list of things that I've done. God, I I gave money to the church when Joe led us in that prayer. Uh, I I went on that mission trip. I I got in the prayer room. I, I prayed some, right? I did these three things. Now, I should get a promotion at work, right? This should be my blessed life. I've done these things, and this is where I, this is my reward. Transactional in nature. When things go wrong and they don't work out according, you come to God with, well, God, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this. Why is this happening to me? Right? That's how you're going to live with God. The way you're going to live with yourself is this constant internal resume that you're trying to meet up to, live up to, achieve, just put another item on your resume because your self-worth is built on your performance. It's based on, you know, what grades did you get in school? What fraternity or sorority did you get into? How well did you do at your sport? What job did you get? Did you climb whatever invisible ladder you made for yourself? Because, right, I get what I deserve. If I work hard, this is how I achieve. That's the way you're gonna live. That's gonna be your internal identity. Man, a transactional relationship with God and an internal identity just marked by the striving and insecurity doesn't sound like a great place to be. Moving on, relationships, right? Everyone then becomes a means to my end because I get what I deserve. So if I'm in a place of power and prestige, well, I deserve it, so I deserve to be able to take advantage of you. You're obviously where you are because you haven't worked as hard as I am, right? And if you achieve kind of whatever you think that you're supposed to do and you live up to your standards, just to be honest, you become an insufferable jerk because you're so prideful. You know, you want to talk about me, 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 me. Like the me monster comes out, right? And you're like, oh man, this is why everybody wants to avoid you at parties because it's just like, gosh, that guy just talks about him, his resume, himself, good night, right? Or if you don't make it, right, then your life is ruined. And you're just, you're down in the dumps. You're like, I never amounted to what I was supposed to be and I'm just a failure. And then all your relationships are affected that way. And listen to me, church, if you care about justice, if you care uh, about uh, issues of racism and sexual abuse, I can tell you that they're rooted in a worldview that's karma in general, that you get what you deserve. And if I'm powerful, might makes right. He who has the gold makes the rules, right? I'm better than you. I have this higher status because I've worked hard and you haven't. That's where you go. Now, let's flip it around. If Jesus is more than a man, if Jesus is not just a man, but if Jesus is is God, this is an entirely different narrative because the story is not that Jesus came and gave you and me a good example for us to follow to live this kind of karma life, but the story is not I came to God, but God came to me. God came looking for me. The change is, I'm not here to save myself, but God has loved me, and in his grace, he came for me to save me. And the operating system that you get to live from is that of grace. That means that your relationship with God is no longer primarily transactional of, hey, let me bring you my list of things that I've done, and you can tell me, I can tell you what I need to be rewarded by. But it's like, I get to have a real relationship with God because I've received his grace. I'm invited to know him and be known by him and not just 
utilize him to get something else that I want. Your internal identity changes from just this constant striving to the most significant defining thing of my life is that Jesus Christ took on flesh for me and for my salvation. Is, is, the, is there truth then? You reap what you sow. Sure. But you know what? If you receive Jesus, that's not the dominant narrative of your life. The dominant narrative of your life is the God of the universe loved me and came for me and I'm a recipient of grace. I didn't get what I deserve. I got what I didn't deserve. This is amazing, right? Everything else is like a minor note on the progression. And this is the major theme. It's grace. So your identity changes, right? You're like secure. Everybody wants that. We struggle with anxiety. Everybody wants, wow, it does it. Wow, that's amazing. Your relationships change. People are no longer transactional. You're no longer looking at them and evaluating yourself. I'm better than you. I'm worse than you because I've worked hard and you haven't, right? But you can actually love people because you've been loved. You can see value in people not based on capacity of what their IQ is or what their bicep size is or how much they make or how, what they made in school, but you can see them as made in the image of God and having inherent value because God made them the creator of all. Wow. So you want to talk about what melts racism, what melts injustice, what melts sexual abuse? It's beginning to see people as made in the image of God, of having value not based on their capacity, but based on who God has made them to be the value that that speaks. Big deal, right? Changes the world, changes the way that we live. When we get clarity on this issue, this is why it matters. This is why it's so important for you and I to see. If we lose sight, though, uh, uh, if we just say, well, he's just God, and we lose sight of his humanity, we miss out on the depths of his love. Theologians say, well, if God just remained God way up there and said he loved us, we kind of receive that as benevolence. But there's something powerful with the fact that God didn't just send a sky rider in the sky to tell you that he loved you. He didn't just send a sunset as beautiful as those are, he came as a person. He took on flesh to look at you and me, that you and I could look, that we could look at Jesus and be like, you understand me. You know how I'm made. You get what it's like to be a human. And you, God, you're so holy, so high. You became human for me, for my salvation. It's amazing. I could go on for five hours on this. I'm excited. We don't have time to do that today. But man, we can bask and we can go deep. And Christianity is not a shallow, quick fix, just kind of tweetable answer, but this is a rich faith that you can dive into and get lost in the mystery and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus being fully man and fully God. So next week where we're going is we're gonna see Dr. Luke is gonna line out what this salvation speaks of. We're gonna respond today uh, by singing together um, uh, a creed. We're gonna sing part of the Apostles' Creed together. It should be really exciting to sing that. It's similar to the Nicene Creed, similar themes, because these truths are not just meant to stay as a statement of faith on a website or in a book, or I kind of believe that, but they're an invitation to worship. They're a call to worship, to enter in to this God who loved us so much and has given us so much. So I wanna invite you to stand.
And we're going to sing this song together as we close. Jesus. Thank you that you are in a stable. There was once something larger than our world. And that you are bigger and better than our minds could ever comprehend. And we affirm that you are fully God and fully man. And we get lost in that mystery and we let it move us to wonder and we let it move us to love and we let it move us to lives marked by grace. In Jesus' name. Well, I hope that encouraged you. If this message spoke to you, if God's doing something in your life, I'd love for you to send us an email and let us know. You can do that by just hitting reply on any of the emails you get from us. Wait, what's that? You don't get emails from us. Oh, man, why don't you go to our website and you can sign up for our community newsletter. Once a week, you'll get updates on what's going on, what God is doing in our midst, and we would love for you to be a part. Uh, if you've enjoyed this series of podcasts, love for you to go on iTunes and leave a review. It helps other people find out uh, about this stuff. Love you guys, and we'll see you next week.